You can't control what's outside your home, but you can control what comes in. Because Clorox disinfecting wipes kill 99.9% of viruses and bacteria, including COVID-19 virus, when used as directed on hard, non-porous surfaces. So whether it's from dirty doorknobs, dirty shoes, or something else, outside germs won't stand the chance. When it counts, trust Clorox. Kill Pseudomonas, Salmonella, and Influenza virus type A2. Kill SARS-CoV-2 on hard, non-porous surfaces. Use as directed. Welcome, everybody, to the Old Time Boxing Show on the Grilly True Sports Network. The Old Time Boxing Show is brought to you by the Retired Boxers Foundation. Make sure you check them out on Facebook with Jackie Richardson and Alex Ramos. Um, I'm your host for the Old Time Boxing Show, Mike Goodpaster, and my co-host is the Grueling Truth Boxing Historian, has been a boxing historian for many different places. It has been a while since we've done this, Chris, but I want to welcome in Christopher Shelton. How you doing, Chris? Uh, good, Mike. It's uh, fun to get to do it again, and, uh, and uh, go, over, go over history again uh, and see if it's the same way people remember it, or if we're seeing something different. Well, and the good thing is, there are no heavyweights worth of shit anymore, so we'll go ahead and look back at some <laughs> guys that were pretty good, because the thing that struck me is our topic today is Jerry Cooney, and I watched him, I watched this fight against Ken Norton. He ended that fight with basically a 16-punch combination, which I don't know if the heavyweights today throw 16 punches that land in an entire fight. Yeah, that was really crazy, and I felt bad for Norton, because Somehow his positioning caught him in the ropes in a way that he couldn't fall down and he couldn't defend himself. And I'm sure the referee, if he could watch it on video, and it happened so fast, would have tried to stop it, you know, before so many punches, especially knowing Norton became paralyzed and all sorts of things. That yeah, Cooney's just pummeling with punches or punches or punches to the head, and Norton is incapable of falling down or defending himself. He's taking a, a really awful beating for less than a minute. Yeah, and I think our next show, we're going to do a topic, which is Michael Spanks, which is a guy that I think people tend to remember his last fight and not everything else before it. And I think with Cooney, a lot of people just remember he was a white heavyweight. But this is a guy who had tremendous boxing skill, especially if you compare him to the fighters of today. And he won multiple Golden Glo- New York State Golden Gloves championships, Chris. Yeah, he was a great uh, amateur fighter, and it's hard for me to get to see those bouts. Um, I wasn't sure so much about his pro career as far as a, a boxer. He had a terrific left hook. Uh, if he jabbed, you know, aimed at the body and threw body punches sort of consistently, they certainly landed. He's a hard hitter. Um, sometimes I'm not sure the way they set him up uh, gave him enough sort of Jimmy Young type people to prepare him for what we'll talk about, you know, Larry Holmes and someone like that. I'm not sure he's quite ready to face a real boxer. Um, though he's a big guy, and if he faces another big guy, he could probably club him and beat him up. Yeah, and he grew up um, in a blue-collar Irish Catholic family on Long Island. The thing that stood out to me is I've had the opportunity to talk to him a few times, and number one, he's a great guy, and number two, something he said to me, it really stuck with me. I don't think he said this on the show I did with him, 
But he told me off air that the hardest he ever got hit was by his dad. Yeah, that's very, very sad. In fact, um, my, my girlfriend, Colleen, is Irish, suffers through my watching all these bouts and stuff like that and didn't really like him as a boxer. But when she heard her interview with you, he, she was just deeply touched by – you know, the Jerry Cooney one, he was, you know, live in this, you know, prize heavyweight. He goes, what a great family we have. What a great, you know, we're all about family. And then um, in real life, and he tells his, real, his story, which you did a great job. Uh, uh, he's abused, and he, he, he hates his dad. His dad treats him, you know, I, get, I took a lot of beatings, too. But that's all you know. You know, it's a trust factor. And he's just beating the shit out of you. He's got an older brother that's a boxer. Probably he's getting, you know, beaten, too. And it's just. An awful situation when you're a victim of child abuse. Yeah, and w at the end of his amateur career, he was 55 and three. Um, he was trained by a guy by the name of Johnny Capo Bianco. Wonder if he was Italian. Um, but <laughs> before he signed, he, he signed with co-manager Mike Jones and Dennis Rappaport. He was trained by Victor Valley. Now Jones and Rappaport were guys that were nicknamed the Wacko Twins. And I think as we look through their career, that it's very understandable why they were called that. So when Cooney starts his career out, and I think the complete intention of the Wacko Twins was basically to make money off the collar of Jerry Cooney's skin. And in his first, he didn't fight a fighter with a winning record until like his 11th pro fight. And the thing that stood out to me about that fight was also it was the first time he was on national television. And he fought on CBS, and he fought S.T. Gordon. And S.T. Right. Gordon was a guy that, at the time, it seemed like no big deal. But S.T. Gordon went on to win the Cruiserweight Championship of the World. I think he upset Carlos De Leon. Yeah, they're both Irish. And uh, and, and you're right. It's uh, uh, Cooney record looked impressive, especially after the first 10 fights, 10-0, nine knockouts. But, yes, what would follow Cooney really throughout his career is, is he really fighting quality opponents? And unless S.C. Gordon uh, uh, is a better fighter, and, and for Cooney, uh, um, it, it appears to be a quality win, but, gosh, the announcers really just beat up on S.C. Gordon. Said, uh, he's probably good at a lot of things, but, that, but not boxing. <laughs> that doesn't say a lot of what people thought about uh, his performance, but Cooney has something to do with that perfor bad performance. You know, you're not, you're facing people you're not getting used to getting hit by Cooney, which seems like Foreman, people who fought a lot of guys, this guy hits you, it's different than a lot of other fighters. Maybe S.C. Gordon just, who's avoiding him and, you know, trying to box, was doing smart, but, you know, Cooney caught him, and uh, Cooney wasn't always very good at, at uh, um, block, um, you know, uh, blocking the, uh, what am I saying, blocking the ring, you know, trying to cut it off. He wasn't really good at cutting off the, the ring, but eventually he caught Gordon when he started hitting Gordon. Uh, Gordon was taking some hits he wasn't used to, and uh, it turned into disqualification of four, disqualification four rounds for Jared Cooney. Yeah, and the thing that stood out to me about that was the belt never should have been sanctioned by the Nevada Athletic Commission. Cooney was a 220-pound heavyweight. Gordon weighed in for the fight at 187, which is a cruiserweight, and I think that's what caused – Plus, he wasn't a very experienced fighter. I think S.T. Gordon, I don't even know if he had an amateur career. But, you know, that S.T. Gordon was nothing like the S.T. Gordon that would go on a handful of years later to beat guys like Sugar De Leon, 
Jesse Burnett, and see St. Gordon beat Trevor Burbick even. Yeah, it, um, uh, well, obviously that you know Gordon's proven some sort of a record, but the fight against Cooney, uh, uh, he really just kind of ran around. It was called the bicycle syndrome, and uh, he did as a dull fight because he wasn't engaging in any way. I guess you could call it defensive boxing, but it's not looking good. Now he was trying to keep trouble. from dying. <laughs> He's trying to keep from dying, exactly. And Cooney's having trouble cutting off the ring, so it's just a matter of when he lands a left hook, and he sort of looks like he's just sort of outstretching his arm a little bit, so he's sort of vaguely connecting with him, but not really getting the force and momentum until, you know, um, I guess it's not that far in, you know, in the early round, but it almost seems like a longer fight than it was because uh, it was hard to get anything to happen. Cooney couldn't quite hit the guy, and the guy didn't want to throw punches. He just wanted to run. Yeah, and then Cooney goes back to beating guys with losing records, and then he fights a guy by the name of Eddie the Animal Lopez. And Eddie the Animal Lopez went the distance with Jerry Cooney. And the thing I remember about Eddie the Animal Lopez, he was one of the toughest guys, and he could take a shot. He beat St. Gordon around the same time, but he also fought John, Big John Tate, who was the Olympic silver medalist in 1976, oh, yeah. and he lost the majority and decision. Some people think heavyweight champion, some people don't, but I know what you mean. Go out, sorry. Yeah, he wasn't the heavyweight champion. Larry Holmes was the heavyweight champion then. But John Tate... Um, <laughs> What a majority decision. I remember watching that fight. I thought Eddie Lopez beat him, and Lopez would go on in his career. He fought some decent competition. He lost a split decision to Leon Spinks, which I thought he won. Um, he got TKO'd by Marty Monroe. And remember this name, Nick Wells. Actually, I think he was the last man to fight Nick Wells in 1982. But Eddie the Animal Lopez, up until this point, I think was the toughest competition that Cooney had fought. And he actually went the distance with Cooney, which I know, I remember from reading like Boxing Illustrated, people wanted to know if maybe Cooney couldn't hit that hard. But I think in retrospect, Lopez's ability to take punishment was damn near second to none coming into that fight. Right, and also that uh, Cooney's fights were, were usually shortened fights as far as, far as um, as people think of now, 12-round fights or 12 rounds or 15 rounds. He has an eight-round bout. So Cooney usually set himself scheduled for most of the ones I watch for about 10 rounds. And, uh, yeah, Lopez, uh, you know, Lopez was a good opponent for Cooney because I still think there's something in the way that there was greed amongst Cooney's people of, hey, we've got ourselves a prize, which became a more valuable prize, and that maybe we should just concentrate on the money and the value of Cooney monetarily as opposed to really putting up against quality opponents, but, but opponents that Cooney can, can, can beat, like Lopez, um, and really build his skills just a little bit better before he absolutely goes for the, um, the big prize. Well, see, and I would compare it to Mike Tyson fighting James Quicktillis, if you know what I'm saying, where James Quicktillis was a oh, tough yeah. guy with a ton of experience. And even though Mike Tyson didn't knock him out, the advantages to fighting a guy like Quick Tillis and going 10 rounds is a lot better than fighting 54 seconds and knocking out Marvis Frazier. Right, and I, I give Tyson uh, credit. He's the first person to go the distance with Mike Tyson as a professional, and uh, it, it shows, you know, I, I grew not to like Tyson so much later on, but that he knew this guy probably was going to go the distance, even though he knocked Tillis flat at least a couple times. And he, I think he said somewhere around the eighth round in a 10-round bout, he decided that, that's okay. Tillis can go the distance, and I'm simply going to keep boxing and, 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 and be smart uh, and not do something stupid going for the knockout. 
And, uh, yeah, it was good for Tyson to, to learn something to go the distance because, you know, eventually that's what happens when, you know, when you move up the ranks. And so it's difficult of trying to put up a quality fighter who you know your fighter's going to beat. So you want a fighter against Jerry Cooney that Cooney's going to beat, but he's going to learn something from the fight. Um, and Tillis was a good one for Tyson, and Lopez was a good one for Cooney. Yeah, the only problem is they didn't give Cooney two more of those guys before three years later came. Yeah. Um, the Absolutely. fight that the fight that put Cooney into the top ten, I think, was a fight at Madison Square Garden, which was on HBO. I forget who it was the undercard for, but Jerry Cooney knocked out the veteran John Dino Dennis in one minute and fourteen seconds of the third round. And I think that's the fight where people really started to pay attention to Cooney because Dennis was known as a tough guy who'd fought just about everybody going into that fight. Right. Yeah, he's an experienced fighter with a good record. It was a quality fight for Cooney. Um, uh, uh, Dennis, you know, fought George Foreman and such, so so he knows how to take a punch, and uh, and he knows how to avoid a punch. So that was a it was a quality win for Cooney. I think it was a third round knockout, but he he may have been better off if Dennis hung around. I don't know, five or six rounds, um, and just again get some sort of a some sort of a, a boxing lesson because Dennis could box, but Cooney did. Once Cooney hit him and started, you know, beating on him, uh, Dennis was finished. Um, and that was impressive. You know, it's a very impressive to, to, to knock out and, and defeat something like Dennis in three rounds at Madison Square Garden, so high profile. But again, Cooney wasn't gaining much other than a high profile win. When it turns out in retrospect, it might have been better if it had gone five, six rounds uh, or something like that. But it was very impressive for Cooney to, take out somebody of high quality in, in such a short amount of time. Well, then he stops Leroy Boone, who was a decent fighter. I think he stopped him in the sixth round, and I think it was a convention center in Atlantic City. But he did a pretty good fight. Yeah. I mean, Leroy Boone actually put up a fight against him, so that was a good one for him. And then he fights Jimmy Young. And the thing about Jimmy Young is, it's according when you fight Jimmy Young. And the thing that always struck me was the fact that Jimmy Young, I think, was in about as good a shape as I've seen him for this Cooney fight. I think he took it extremely seriously, and Cooney yeah. opened up a huge gash on him. And I, I always wanted to see what would have happened and how much more Cooney could have learned by this fight going more than four rounds. But this was a fight on CBS Sports, or CBS, and it was on a Saturday afternoon, if I remember right. I actually remember watching this fight. And I think this is the fight that really threw Cooney into the fire here of getting him that Holmes fight. Right. And uh, Jimmy Young, just, I'm not sure if all listeners exactly, he was a great defensive fighter. He started out a little more, appearing, apparently sort of almost mediocre, somebody he didn't think was going to uh, go too far. And then he just started becoming such a great defensive fighter and quick and fast and smart that he was putting together a series of wins. Fought Muhammad Ali, champion for the heavyweight championship. I think he gave him a hell of a fight. I actually think he won the fight. I know you don't think he did. but uh, I don't think either one of them deserved to win that fight, to tell you the truth. Right. Like, it, it was a football game. If any game could end in a 0-0 tie, that was the one. I thought Young was impressive, but I know he started falling through the ropes with a sort of tactic so that it wouldn't be a knockdown and that there'd be a delay. That was sort of ugly for Young because he was really defeating Ali in a way that you'd be rooting for him. But when he did a sort of rope a smoke or whatever he's doing, it kind of it was kind of ugly. Uh, and then he fought George Foreman, knocked 
Foreman down, getting Foreman's last knockdown in the 15th round, and just brilliant in giving Foreman's last a second yeah. loss. And they beat Foreman. In 10 years. And exactly. Great, great victory. Fought Norton. Real close fight. I guess uh, anybody could watch Ken Norton and Jim Young come to their own conclusion, but ultimately Ken Norton got the decision. Yeah, that was a hell of a fight, Lyle, too, because Norton's known for being boring. But Norton Young was a great fight, and then we got to the point where we talked about before where he loses the two fights to Ozzy Ocasio where he's overweight and just seems disinterested. Yeah, uh, exactly. But uh, but when he fought Cooney, Young, you're right. Young, young knew this is it. This is, this is it. This is a guy. Uh, Cooney is such a high profile. Muhammad Ali wanted to fight him uh, earlier. Uh, and uh, a lot of the guys wanted to fight Jerry Cooney, especially because Jerry Cooney had this white label on him, and the Great White Hope. And uh, um, Jimmy Young, it was a very high-profile bout, and he came in prepared, and uh, and it looked like in the first, you know, uh, seemingly only a round or two, but it looked like he was going to give Cooney a lot to think about as far as being able to dodge the punches, deflect them a little bit, uh, move inside, keep Cooney from establishing distance, but in the end, Cooney caught him fast and beat him up, knocked his hit that eye and uh, cut it open, and then really started smashing on it. And the, the left hook lands, and uh, Jimmy Young was finished. They uh, four rounds, and they maybe should have stopped it a little bit earlier. Um, Cooney was almost doing too good uh, when he was fighting some of these guys, and Jimmy Young's one of them. That gosh, if it had gone six, seven rounds, it might have helped Cooney. I'm not sure, but how can you blame a guy if you can knock a guy out in four rounds, knock him out in four rounds? Don't yeah. play games with somebody like Jimmy Young. And, now, uh, and he didn't. And beat the shit out of him. Now, here's my only thing with the retrospective of Jerry Cooney is the way people write off the Ron Lyle and the Ken Norton wins. But when you look at this, Ron Lyle, the two years before he fought Cooney, had beaten Stan Ward, who was a contender, Joe Bugner, who was a contender. He beat Scott Ledoux. He did have a loss to Lynn Ball. But going into that fight, he was a fringe top 10 guy. So I don't think this was him as far over the hill as people thought it was. I do think he was over the hill, but I still think the beat him in two minutes is pretty impressive. I think so, too, because they always say in boxing, the, the last thing to go is your, is your punch. And Ron Lapp punch. He and George Foreman probably got in the best slugging slug it out battle, maybe an offensive, offensive yeah. boxing fight in history, uh, knocking each other down several times. And uh, so Ron Lyle, he, he came out too. You know, Cooney, these were not being handed to him. Ron Lyle came out on fire. He, he attacked uh, Cooney, again, a high profile. Ron Lyle, uh, sort of like Jimmy Young, he sort of looked like this is my opportunity, my last opportunity, maybe. And that uh, Cooney turned around quick. I mean, it's a very impressive to take out somebody like Ron Lyle in a strict slugging contest where really Cooney just beat the shit out of Ron Lyle. And Ron Lyle was a tough guy, a, a lot of years in jail for murder, uh, manslaughter, I think, and uh, and uh, gave Muhammad Ali a pretty damn good fight for the heavyweight championship, and uh, Cooney beat the shit out of him. It's, it's impressive, uh, and I guess that's all you can say. Yeah, and I know he wasn't in his prime. It's not the same as beating up Ron Lyle in 1976. Oh, yeah. 30 years old, yeah. But I don't think it should be written off as quickly as people do. And the other one is Ken Norton, which that was on HBO. And I still remember every fight that was on that card because they, that card started with Marvis Frazier against Steve Zowski and Domingo Di Elia, who upset Miguel Montillo. And in the main event, Cooney in 54 <laughs> seconds 
absolutely destroys Ken Norton. But the thing about Norton is this, once again, after the loss to Shavers by a first-round knockout in March of 79, he comes back five months later. He gets a draw with Scott Ledoux, who was a top-ten guy there. He would get a shot against you know, Larry Holmes a few months, about a year after that. And then he fought Randall Tex Cobb about six months before he fought Cooney. He beat Cobb on a controversial split decision. So once again, people want to act like he's 57 years old. But still, this is a Ken Norton who was ranked 6th, I think, by the WBA and 10th by the WBC. Uh, yeah, serious discipline. It's well-conditioned, the athlete, even as he was aging, you know, ex-Marine, uh, gave Muhammad Ali a second loss. And he was a decent uh, actor in Mandingo. Yeah, there you go. You can't beat that. Uh, but, but Jerry Cooney, you know, I guess uh, sometimes I almost want to think, you know, that he's overhyped or knock his boxing skills. But maybe one thing that's underestimated is his pure power. Um, this is a guy chasing the sluggers and, and really beating the, beating the crap out of them. And the Norton thing is just so unfortunate because Norton got pinned against the ropes and couldn't escape. And Kunis is pounding on him, pounding on him, pounding on him. And you think years later, Ken Norton's in a wheelchair and, and the, the punishment box, he takes out on somebody. But, you know, Kuni has to keep throwing punches until the referee stops it. And the referee probably could have stopped it about, oh, 10, 15 seconds earlier. And it would have been great for Ken Norton's health, but he didn't. So couldn't have any choice but keep pounding and pounding on the guy. And Norton was unconscious. He didn't only know where he was. He, he was out. He was, uh, um, that was a really brutal, brutal knockout uh, by Jerry Clinton. All right. And then we get to 19, the end of 81, 1982. And the thing that I always wondered was the fight was made for CBS Sports with Jerry Cooney versus Mike Weaver. I think the fight was made for, like, October of 81. And right. I, I think Cooney got hurt or Weaver got hurt. They ended up not fighting. And I always wondered, because I think Cooney would have beat Weaver because I think he had more skill and they were both big punchers. I think I my big thing here is I wonder how that would have changed things. I think it would have been... In retrospect, it depends on what, what you're trying to do. Just make money or get the, the glory of the championship, I assume. If, you know, if I'm talking about the experience of fighting a guy like Mike Weaver who went that's, life that's, or death against Larry Holmes. That's exactly that's exactly what I'm saying, too, and agreeing that Mike Weaver, one of the greatest fights I ever remember was against John Tate. He was down after 14 rounds. He was going to lose the fight. And that 15th round, out of nowhere, knockout of Tate. Uh, I love Mike Weaver. Mike Weaver was a guy who who could land a punch and sometimes couldn't take a punch, but he was dangerous. And I do think Cooney should face somebody that real dangerous before fighting Holmes. And I do agree that I, I, I think it would be an interesting fight. Uh, and I do think Cooney would probably maybe going in, I would think he might have an advantage. Because it seemed like he could take a punch maybe better than Mike Weaver, but both of them could deliver a punch. And Mike Weaver is a better, more experienced fighter. And uh, I wish Cooney had fought Weaver if his goal is to come champion. Uh, it didn't happen. Cooney seemed very disappointed by his handlers because it doesn't seem like he was really given a reason. And, and he's the fighter, and it seems like, well, you ask him, why, why, why didn't you fight Mike Whitmer? I don't know. <laughs> you know, and uh, it seems like there's just a bunch of politics, and he's put in the hands of people that he trusts, and, you know, his background with his dad. And I feel bad for Cooney because you probably go through life thinking everybody sucks. You can't trust anyone. <laughs> um, and uh, I think he would have been better off fighting Weaver. He didn't. 
And uh, it's too bad. It would have been a very interesting fight, and I think it would have been better for Cooney's career, certainly if you could beat him. Yeah, because I think really if you push Cooney Holmes back a year or even, it could change the outcome of the fight. Um, then one of my favorites is, was it the Leon Spinks, uh, Larry Holmes title fight, where at the end of the fight, Cooney and Holmes go after each other while Howard Cosell's interviewing him and knocks off Howard Cosell's toupee. Oh, yeah. And uh, what was really crazy, I still remember the Spinks-Holmes fight, you know, Spinks was the third person to meet Muhammad Ali when the title is that, it was a joke in the pre-fight that Spinks, people were predicting this guy to possibly beat Larry Holmes, and that seems so absurd. Yeah, but you know uh, what that was. Spinks beat Ali, and everybody was still holding on to Ali instead of Holmes. Right, right. That that was something that Holmes Holmes had a bitterness to him, and I've got to say that bitterness is ugly. You know, you know, Rocky Marciano couldn't hold my jockstrap type comments, and screw what people think of me. You know, I also want my family thinks of me. He put himself out bad, but that bitterness was there, and. Um, um, I think you're right. He was, he, it was waiting to come out. Even Howard Cosell, not just to pay off. Well, how about this though? Uh, because I, I've gotten to talk to Larry Holmes multiple times, did a show, interviewed him there. And I think the bitterness actually drove him. I think the bitterness is what made him a great fighter because I think he liked thinking the whole world was against him. And I, I think that he just, he enjoyed people wanting to see him lose and he just kept winning. And it was more of like a me against the world thing with Larry Holmes and Larry Holmes. I can tell you the first time I talked to him before I interviewed him, I come off thinking, Oh man, this interview is going to be terrible because the guy's an asshole. But then when you interview him and you talk to him after that, once he has some modicum of respect for you, it's like he stays in this shell because of the way people have treated him before, and he's trying to feel you out to see if you're one of these people looking for an angle to attack him or not, if that makes any sense. And then once he realizes that you're not, he's a damn good guy. Yeah, and I get, actually, I gather uh, some of the things. What I'm usually getting is just what I hear at a con- press conference and stuff, not realizing that a person can be their worst self or their best self, but not their real self, Either way, and uh, you know, you've interviewed him uh, personally, but I got to see you know sort of other other forums for him. And uh, like, I love my girlfriend Colleen. It's really nice to hear him talk about a love for his wife, and he loves you know this, his town in Pennsylvania, and he's built a good business. And there is a side of Larry Holmes that feels like if everybody wasn't against me, I'd be a nicer guy. But everybody is against me. I'm not Muhammad Ali. And uh, and then the Jerry Cooney thing really spun him into everybody's against me now because I'm a black and the wrong black or the wrong this and the this and that. And it made him cuckoo a little bit. And at the same time, you're right, it drove him to be uh, a really legitimate heavyweight champion. Uh, not John Tate, but Larry Holmes. Yeah, and the thing is, that fight was originally scheduled for March of 1982. It was postponed because Cooney injured his back in training, was pushed to June. And I think this, in my lifetime, which is 1968 to now, I remember stuff probably from 75 on. I still think out of all the fights I've ever seen, this was the biggest fight in my lifetime. This was one of the biggest sporting events in the history of sports. Oh, it certainly was. And it was just, uh, 
uh, sort of sad if he seems so racially uh, oriented, the white guy and the black guy and the great white hope stuff, because, and some people are saying, yeah, but white people can root for the white guy, and that doesn't make them racist. You're any more than a black guy can root for Larry Holmes, and that doesn't make them racist. But that's what it became, and I feel bad for Larry Holmes, because there are people that, that, for whatever reason, I can think of um, myself and my girlfriend for different reasons, that you get labeled white. When I mean, you get labeled white in a non-white world, or in a non, you know, it, it makes you look like a horrible person or a racist, even though Jerry Cooney didn't do, really didn't have anything to do with that. No. Uh, this this was all, it didn't have anything to do with Cooney or Holmes. It was basically, as they called them, the Wacko Twins and Don King, which decided they were yeah. going to make as much money as they could. But when you look at it, Johnson Jeffries had the same, Johnson and Jeffries had the same racial connotations. Um, Lewis and Schmeling, they used the Nazi versus the American. Ali Frazier was a black-white fight because you had so many I black people. Crazy. Yeah, black people Uncle labeling Tom against the real black guy. Yeah, Uncle Tom against the real black guy. So this is the thing. To this day, Deontay Wilder just fought Luis Ortiz, and over and less than two hundred thousand people bought the pay per view. My question to you is this: At eighty bucks a pop, if Holmes and Cooney were fighting today, how many people would buy that fight? Because my guess is you're looking at five to ten million at least. It would be out of out of sight if 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 you have no idea what's going to happen in the fight because uh, besides the racial uh, anything and just to mention Newsweek put Sylvester Stallone the fictional boxer and Jerry oh that, that was Ty's, not, Time Magazine oh it's Time Magazine so yeah. uh, it did come across awkward but uh, but beyond that you have a great boxer I guess it's Slugger and Slugger versus boxer styles make fights uh, the Irishman. Uh, Cooney's, uh, you know, background, uh, uh, it, it led, to, it, it just led to a fight and Cooney's devastation of, of, uh, you know, Norton, Young, Dennis, uh, Lyle, uh, it, it just looked like a great, uh, it, it looked, it was, it was waiting to happen. And finally with Larry Holmes, there was a certain feeling, even though it probably isn't fair exactly that he's not really taking on the same kind of guys as Muhammad Ali. I'm not sure it's his fault. I think he should have fought George Foreman, but meanwhile, this time it was high profile. Larry Holmes is in the spotlight. There's no more Muhammad Ali. He got a, a the only knockout of Muhammad Ali in the tenth round when Ali wisely sandwiched on Dundee when Lyndon Brock for the eleventh. But Holmes is finally I'm the goddamn heavyweight champion and and I'm gonna I don't think he's gonna show him Jerry Cooney lesson. I just think he thought he'd, I'm gonna fight really smart and and that's I'm it's gonna work for me and uh, and, and he did. It was a, it was a interesting. Really well boxed, thought out thought by Larry Holmes. Yeah, and this is one where you have all kind of depth threats. They got snipers positioned on top of the buildings. Um, the white guy, the white Irishman, Jerry Cooney, comes out to the theme from Rocky. You know, McFadden and Whitehead are playing. Ain't no stopping us now for Larry Holmes. They get in the ring, right. and then the final shot, which to me, Rocky. the final shot to me is this. They introduced yeah. Larry Holmes, the world heavyweight champion, first. And the thing why that really stands out to me is Don King's one of the promoters of this fight. Don King knew they were going to do that. Yeah, well, that's actually that's an interesting question. That, gosh, I'm supposed to be the historian, but you might have me on this one since you spoke to both Holmes and Cooney. But I always found that interesting because generally the heavyweight champion is a choice. Now, Jack Johnson, as heavyweight champion, chose to go first. He wanted to go first. It was a choice. Almost every other champion chooses to go second. I just sort of assumed 
Holmes was given an option and chose first, no. but I don't know. He wasn't. You know? He wasn't given an option because I remember talking to him, and he said it was the thing that pissed him off the most was when they introduced him first because he assumed he would be the second guy introduced. You're right. He assumed to give the choice, and now I know. And uh, he's right. He's goddamn right to be pissed off. Um, that's wrong. You know, the heavyweight champion gets a choice. Uh, most go second. But if you want to go first, it's a choice, and then he can give him a choice. That sucks. Larry Holmes has the right to be pissed off and feel degraded uh, as a heavyweight champion or as an athlete or as a human being. Yeah, and the fight is one that stood out to me. Like you said, Holmes, I think, really respected Cooney's power even before he felt it because Holmes fought very tight. And I don't mean tight where he was nervous, but, I mean, both hands were up the whole time where against a guy like Lorenzo Zanone, he may let the right drop here or there, the left dropper here or there. But he stayed really tight, and at the end of the second round, he caught Cooney, and he put Cooney on the ground. And I remember watching this fight with my dad and a bunch of his friends, and our immediate thing was, this is just a guy that's there because he's white. But after that second round, Cooney pretty much controlled the third through the seventh rounds. Well, he had, the, you know, the every, everybody sort of uh, determined how he did. I still I do think Cooney fought much better and seemed to be not just confident, but sort of smarter. Now, now this guy's in front of me, and what do I do with him? And Cooney was pressing the fight better. And in a sense, those are boxing skills. He could cut off the ring a little bit better than he had in the past. And uh, Holmes was bouncing on his legs or standing flat-footed. He was giving Cooney a lot of different things. And, and Cooney was certainly, for the people that thought, hey, this guy can't box. This guy's fought nothing but chumps. This guy's undeserving. But he, he really is hanging in there with Holmes, with Holmes looking really at his best. I mean, Larry Holmes, you know, sometimes could get sloppy and let himself get knocked down. He rarely, he rarely lost too many rounds, but he didn't want Cooney to land that left hook. So he was he, he kept keeping that at bay as best he could and, and trying to throw Cooney off. And uh, and, 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 and it, was, it, was, it was a pretty close fight after seven or eight rounds. And some people think, uh, I you know I was with people. I was actually betting on Larry Holmes, so I was happy about it. But uh, but yeah, it was a close. It was a close enough fight that Larry Holmes could never get sloppy, and then and I think he kept hoping Cooney would tire out. But uh, Cooney was not tiring out. He never got anywhere near the the amount of rounds he went for that fight. Well, and the punch that stands out to me the most, and this is just from talking to Holmes. The Holmes said the hardest body shot he ever got hit by was at the end of the fourth round against Jerry Cooney. And I remember him telling me, he said, when you go back and watch the fight, watch after that punch. The bell rings a few seconds after, and you'll see me headed back to my corner, and I grab on the ropes. He said it felt like his ribs were broke. And from there... I think the fight was relatively even through eight rounds and even through ten, possibly. And then Holmes or Cooney's inactivity and not going more than eight to ten rounds before, I think, really bit him in the ass. Oh, absolutely. And Holmes, which, you know, it drove people crazy because they're sort of – Holmes didn't really care what the fans thought in many ways. So these dull 15-round fights, but there were quite a few of them against really quality guys. So he was used to just picking up points. Uh, uh, landing his combinations when he said that left jab, left jab, left jab that, that keeps hitting and uh, and being smart against Cooney. He just figures I'm not going to do something stupid against Cooney and and trying to find his moments, which he, he was getting them. 
I, I really thought Combs, I thought my mind was going a little farther ahead than the judges, but uh, it was still a close fight. It was a great fight after 10 rounds. Um, I, I would have thought Holmes was a little more ahead, but, uh, but a lot of people thought it was almost even. And, uh, you know, that's not it. In retrospect, that's, it's a close fight. And I give Tuning a lot of credit, uh, though some people think, hey, you know, he really should have, he, he took away some of his aggression just, just practicing for duration, while Holmes is used to duration. And, and again, I'm a more experienced guy. And, and, you know, he didn't really fight bitter. Holmes fought smart. And I, and I like that. I, bitters can really help you sometimes. But I really think Holmes just fought smart against Cooney. Yeah, and the whole key to me to this, why I think Cooney was a very talented guy, is because I think he got the best Larry Holmes possible, and he yes. was very competitive against him. Yeah, I, you know, that's a great point. That's a, that, I love that, because that's Jerry Cooney, where you can give him a lot of credit. He made Larry Holmes finally look like Larry Holmes. He yeah. made Larry Holmes have to fight at his best and his smartest. And uh, you got to give Cooney a lot of credit because the tra- the training, uh, especially after a champion, you just let down against certain guys. And and Cooney brought a Holmes best, and uh, and it's still a hell of a fight, Holmes. But uh, you know Holmes is the best, uh, and not bitter. Uh, finally, was able to start landing the punches a little more frequent. He was just you could see Cooney the hands be going down, the the a blurriness sort of in Cooney, and then Holmes just sort of waiting to attack. Uh, and uh, and just started uh, coming to an end uh, on 12th, 13th round. Yeah, and round I, I have a problem with Jones and Rappaport and the way they handled Cooney. Um, Victor Valley, who is his trainer, I don't have a problem with, though, because a lot of guys would allow that fight to continue. Because if you look at the last knockdown where Cooney grabs under the ropes, kind of slowly goes to the ground, Mills Lane's giving him a count, and he's probably going to let that fight go. And Victor Valley ran in, puts his arms around Cooney, and it made me have a lot of respect for Victor Valley, even though the stuff that was said in between rounds in that ring from him and Dennis Rappaport I thought were appalling. I think that with Valley, he was a guy that really cared about Cooney. Well, I think that it is true. that it all happened very suddenly when Holmes was clearly on the attack and and knocking uh, Cooney a little bit senseless. I'm not actually sure Cooney hit the ground before Mills Lane stopped it. I do believe Mills Lane stopped it before uh, Cooney's corner stopped. It all happened almost in a in a flash, but they called it a knockdown, but Cooney hadn't actually touched the ground when Mills Lane jumped. Uh, and they they did call it a knockdown because he was starting to give him the eight count because he's he got wrapped up with his left arm in the ropes, and he reached right. down with his right glove, that's when Mills Lane called it a knockdown, oh. and he was counting. Now, I don't know if Mills Lane would have let it go, but I'm just saying at that time, it's not like these times. It's for the heavyweight championship of the world, and my right. guess is he probably lets him have a shot. Yeah, you know what? I guess that's a good point. Because once, 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 once Valley comes into the ring, it's over. You know, and he grabs his hugger, grabs Cooney, hugs him. Basically, you did a hell of a job. I love you. But this is there's no reason to, to take this another two rounds. And Mills Lane did a great job officiating. You know, I got to give the guy and credit. And uh, and uh, it all happened again, sort of in a blur. And I think it was a good for everybody concerned. Uh, I'm not sure it would have been a good idea for for Cooney to go there for a 14th and 15th round against Holmes, who's so used to these 15 round fights, and maybe could have inflicted some serious damage on Cooney. We don't yeah. know for sure. 
But but it, it seems if, if Cooney's camp feels that way, then I don't think it's unreasonable for other people to think that way. All right. Then Cooney, after that fight, took over two years off, um, went into depression, started drinking heavily. This is not my conjecture. This is what I was told um, and by the source. And over two years, they right. don't get him back in the ring. And the way this should have ran was he's losing in June. He should have been fighting by October at the latest to get somebody, anybody, just to get him out of that depression to keep, continue his career going. Because I think letting this go over two years before he fought again was basically the end of Jerry Cooney. Right. I do believe that, you know, when you have a, a, a depression like this, Floyd Patterson would say when you lose a high-profile bout, you're, you're one step closer to the ghetto. And, and Cooney went from star to bum because the fall so so harsh. And uh, I gather he, he had problems with alcohol and, and uh, problems with depression. And um, I guess you have to decide whether you're going to do it or not. But then at some point somebody starts pointing money at you. I don't think he really wanted to do it again. But uh, people started pointing money, and um, what else is he going to do? You know, you got bills to pay, and you're worth a lot of money. You're very high profile. And yeah. So, yeah, I guess you get back to the game. Well, see, the sad thing also is right after that fight in 1982, everybody had mad respect for Jerry Cooney. It's the right. going on the apology tour for a year, and then two years, three months later, he fights Philip Brown in Anchorage, Alaska. Brown was 23-0, and 0, but he was nondescript. He knocks him out. And then three months later, he fights George Chaplin. Now, George Chaplin's a guy that was a solid fighter, and he knocks him out. George Chaplin, I think, beat Greg Page by a decision, even though he gave Page the decision a few years before. And then you think, well, he's fought twice in three months. Everything's changed. But it didn't. Well, because, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, because you got another well, year and a half before he fights again against Eddie Gregg. Yeah, and, um, uh, you know, again, they're pretty, pretty quick victories. The four-rounder against uh, an Anchorage against uh, um, uh, what's it called Brown, and then uh, the two-rounder in Phoenix, Arizona, my own Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, but, you know, the thing is, my girlfriend, Colleen, who's got really excited about these things, says she's really upset with Jerry Cooney because she swears he's on steroids. She's looking at his body versus Holmes and his body when, against Brown and uh, Chaplin and says, hey, this guy's not looking right. He's back muscles look wrong, and his physique looks different, and we all know a lot of people did steroids, uh, and uh, it says boobs, she's pointing at me, his boobs look different, and uh, she's convinced he was on steroids, and I don't know whether it was or wasn't, but he does look a little bit different, and it's worth, it's worthy at least throwing it out there, um, that maybe there's a lot of stuff going on in, in Cooney's head while he's getting some, at least a couple wins, staying a little bit in the, in the limelight, though he wasn't ranked or anything, and he's still a high high-profile, popular guy, um, a popular guy without a cost, sort of. Yeah, and I, I think with the steroids there, I think with the alcohol and the drugs, usually guys like that aren't doing steroids. Um, when you get to 86, he fought Eddie Gregg. He yeah. stopped him in a round. Eddie Gregg was a decent fighter. He was 24-1. and one. I think they fought that at the Cow Palace in San Francisco. Um, then you get a year off. And he gets a shot against Michael Spinks, who, of course, had upset Larry Holmes twice, had defended his title once against Stefan Tangstad, which is the only time we'll ever bring up Stefan Tangstad on a boxing show. Um, <laughs> that is an, it's an embarrassment that that's a heavyweight championship fight. Some people say it isn't. 
It is a heavyweight championship fight because Michael Spinks was the true heavyweight champion of the world. And you know what? Ali got to fight like Richard Dunn, which ain't a whole hell of a lot better. And all all these guys, Joe Lewis, all these guys uh, fought nondescript guys, Jean-Pierre, Koopman, Brian London. All those guys were a joke, too, when it came to being actually qualified to fight for the heavyweight championship. But this Spinks and Cooney fight, is a fight where I think Cooney, in his right mind, probably wins just on size alone. But Michael Spinks beat the hell out of him, basically. Well, yeah, she fought a smart fight. I, again, uh, now, again, with the talk about steroids, uh, now Cooney looks different against Spinks, but in a better way. He looks healthier. Uh, it looks He doesn't look quite as... You know, deformed as he does in those uh, uh, other in the couple fights, especially those that right after uh, home. And uh, Michael Spinks, uh, my girlfriend says, there's no way that man's on steroids. And Michael Spinks, uh, you know, gold Olympic champion, greatest, one of the greatest light heavyweight champions ever. Unbelievable fight to take Larry Holmes' uh, undefeated record, one of the great fights ever um, to win the championship. And yeah, he fought really smart against. You know, he fought he fought not just smart against Cooney, he fought aggressive. Uh, people thought Sphinx would kind of run, you know, stay, the distance, stay away from Cooney. It's his power. But Sphinx just really seemed to try to, to bother Cooney's distance and then just use superior hand speed um, to keep landing punches until, uh, and footwork that uh, very quickly uh, Sphinx turned around into knockdown and knockout. And it's, just, it's just a reminder what a, just what a great fighter Michael Sphinx is. I don't know if Cooney at, at that point was where he was at, you know, and stuff like that. But Michael Sphinx made him look back because Michael Sphinx was just a great fighter. And, um, you know, uh, it, it was, it's fun to watch all the celebrities there because Michael Sphinx deserves his moment. Uh, and uh, just a great fight, knockout, five rounds, TKO, um, for the heavyweight champion, Mr. Sphinx. Just imagine if Jerry Cooney does this right. And in 1987 or 88, he's got one loss, but maybe won a rematch against Larry Holmes. What kind of money would Cooney Tyson do? Wow. Oh, absolutely. If if he, you know, I guess you can't, I guess you can't get over what's in your head, you know, especially child abuse. Child abuse fucks you up and alcohol screws you up and, and whatever's going on. Well, and chances are the child abuse led to the alcohol. Yeah, exactly. And I just think that Cooney uh, just couldn't get, just couldn't get himself he didn't really know how the cards were going to play out. And, and as it, it turned out, uh, yes, if he could have stayed, kept his head together, had some fights, and, uh, defeated Michael Spinks, you know, because he, he, he brought that one-round knockout while Michael Spinks was fighting a lot. Um, and uh, if he had better, uh, you know, more bouts, you know, and such like that, beat Michael Spinks, oh, yeah, Mike Tyson uh, uh, on a run, undefeated Mike Tyson, the – Invisible yeah, because you remember Mike how Tyson big Tyson against oh. Spanks once and for all was when they did it. If you insert Cooney in there as beating Spanks, that fight even oh, doubles yeah. what it was. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And uh, and the nice thing is I don't think, you know, they're always going to be a racial point, but I think that actually wouldn't be so much. I think no. you have a, a great Mike Tyson against the, the once great Cherry Cooney, if it is in a slugger battle, and I just think it would have been great for the fans. And and such like that, but uh, Michael Spinks gave Mike Tyson credibility by such a devastating 91 second knockout. But uh, yeah, it's too bad. Uh, um, Cooney wasn't, you know, 
it, it is what it is, you know. Yeah, it, I still think Spinks was. Something you to be great and drives I, you to the ground. I, I think Spinks was pretty much done after the Cooney fight, though, unfortunately. I mean, just the, really fact, was, the fact that he comes yeah, into the fight with Tyson with two knee braces, if you know what I mean. I, yeah. I think his legs were gone, and I think he knew he couldn't get away. And I don't for one second think Michael Spinks was afraid. I think that by the time Michael no. Spinks got in a ring with Mike Tyson, he just didn't see a way to be able to win. No, and he would try to fight sort of aggressive, which just isn't the way to go. But I, I guess, you know, I just I love Michael Spinks so much. My girlfriend loves him. And I just wish he hadn't fought him. But, you know, they wave $6 million or whatever they wave at you. Who turns down, you know, $10 million, $6 million, $10 million? Oh, hell, back then it was twenty or $18 million, I think, he made. Was it? Yeah, and she, who turns down that kind of money? So it's really easy for, for people that are sports fans to say, yeah, forget the $18 million. But that's $18 million. And maybe I let Mike Tyson get the shit out of me for half of that. Oh, yeah. Um, but Mike it, can beat me up but, for $100,000. Know, I'd be good with that. Oh, yeah. It's, uh, me too. I figure he's 50. Uh, I mean, he wouldn't be able to hurt us as bad now. Yeah, there you go. Um, but, uh but, yeah, it's unfortunate for Michael Spinks' legacy and because of stuff like that. People don't even remember him beating Larry Holmes the first time for the heavyweight champion. Or being a great lightweight heavyweight They aren't remembering the Olympic gold medal. They're not really remembering the great yeah. fighting. I mean, Cooney. come on. He starts um, Marvin Johnson in four rounds. And that's yeah. the fight that stands out to me because nobody did that to Marvin Johnson. Marvin Johnson was a great light heavyweight. Yeah, Dwight Muhammad and uh, a lot of these guys. Even you fought... Uh, he's just he's just tremendous, uh, one of the greats of all time. But again, remember for one fight because everyone just Mike Tyson, the momentum and the build up and the hype, and that's what turned it into craziness about the Mike Tyson. Nobody will face him. Everybody's afraid of him except maybe Evander Holyfield. So I don't know if Cooney would have been afraid. What no uh, maybe uh, Evander Holyfield was not afraid. Um, and then you get. George Foreman and Jerry Cooney in 1990, they called this the geezers at Caesars, the preacher versus the puncher. And to tell you the kind of poll Foreman and Cooney was, it was black against white, but nobody cared about that. They just wanted to see what happened when these guys hit each other. There was 13,000 at the convention center. There was a huge closed circuit pay-per-view crowd. And this is the fight that really got people to take Foreman seriously it was Cooney's first fight in two and a half years. And I remember Gil Clancy trained Cooney for this fight. And I remember seeing an interview with him where he said he always wanted to trade Jerry Cooney because he thought he could have made Jerry Cooney the heavyweight champion of the world. Um, Cooney told me he probably trained harder for this fight than he did for any fight. And this, for four or five minutes, had more action than all the heavyweight fights we see in a complete year here anymore. And I know I got to interview George Foreman, too, and I hate to brag, but I am, Chris. But he still claims, Foreman does, that Cooney hit him harder than anyone he's ever been in a ring with. Cooney hit him at the end of the first round with a left hook and then hit him at the start of the second round. And Foreman said, I knew I had to get him out of there because I didn't want to get hit with that hook no more. Well, right. And, uh, you know, I guess you're right. It's kind of funny to say. And I haven't heard of the reputation of that's a great fight in three rounds. This was two rounds. The hell of a two-round fight. A two-round yeah. bout. Uh, I mean, Cooney was four, smacking four. him at the end of that first round and at the start of the second. Yeah, and it's such, a, it's such a great fight in retrospect because Cooney looks like he's the end of the trail. Foreman was still considered a little bit, oh, come on, a joke. Though, 
uh, Foreman never went down, and that second rat, the second run, ten years of retirement, and until he landed the heavyweight championship in, at age forty-five, nobody knocked him down. I don't know. Hey, George could probably be half the guys down. in the top ten right now, Chris. Oh yeah, uh, and he's and seventy-five. <laughs> and the thing is, you know, um, Cooney is a competitor. You know, these guys are, they have to be competitors to be who they are and what they are, but, but Foreman's at one of those hyper levels of, of greatness and his competitiveness is just, it's just, it, it's, you can see it in his eyes sometimes. He's not the fat guy who's cheeseburgers to train. This is a guy who, who got pride and, uh, and, and, and it's there and Cooney was a good opponent for him, uh, high profile enough to, to keep thinking Foreman, come on, this thing isn't serious, but it's serious enough to give him another high profile fight. And of course, Foreman parlayed that into, uh, another heavyweight champion Yeah, and the great thing about all this is we talked about Holmes and Cooney, how in 1980, 81, 82, they looked like they hated each other, all this racist stuff going around them. And the thing that stuck out to me is I interviewed Larry Holmes and I brought up Jerry Cooney, and he spent five minutes talking about what a great guy and a great fighter Jerry Cooney was. Cooney's the same way with Holmes, and after all this animosity – had boiled over in 1982. The fact is now with their with Cooney's organization Fist, which helps former boxers get jobs, medical insurance, all that. Holmes and Cooney now are best friends. Well, uh, I know they, they think highly of each other. So it's kind of what um, the fans hope for. But you don't always get your way with. They hate each other when they're fighting, and then afterwards are buddies. But I think also the, maybe both of them learned more about the other one as human beings. Uh, a little bit more about the family life, and and you know you start to get touched by somebody else's story, and they have this great moment together, and so it is kind of nice that both of them say uh, kind things about the other. And my girlfriend want to say Jerry Cooney says nice things about everybody. Jerry Cooney's a humble person. Yeah, but how about this? Never you tell your girlfriend this. Guys like that though, if he doesn't say anything about Larry Holmes. That means he doesn't like him, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, but, th- but these two guys, time. just from talking to both of them on air and off air, yeah. genuinely are fond of each other. And I think that happens. And that's the great thing about boxing, because you kind of see into each other's souls when you're standing in the middle of a ring with the entire world watching you, and you're hurting each other. And you realize this guy's not going anywhere. I mean, it's hard not to have respect for a man that will stand and give it and take it like that. Right, and I, I will give Cooney also a hell of a lot of credit for this. For To get knocked down in the second round, this thing could have almost looked like, wow, is this thing going to be one-sided? Yeah, Lennox Lewis, Michael Grant's what comes to mind to me there. Yeah, it's nice to see, though. Yeah, it, it, it turned into a battle. They're both... Uh, um, you know, very intense against the other one. And uh, um, it is great that when all said and done, the fight itself is remembered. We certainly still remember it. It's really high profile. And, yeah, I guess it's nice if, if in the end the two guys can be good sports and say uh, um, it is what it is and the other guy's a hell of a guy and somebody had to win and the better boxer won. Well, hell, when you were a kid, didn't you ever get in a fist fight with one of your friends and you were even better friends after that? Uh, not really. Was, I got disliked with people. I hated the guys and they hated mine. <laughs> so you didn't have any respect for him after that. All right, Chris. Um, once again, Chris, 
It was great to bring this show back. I can't wait to talk about Michael Spinks next Friday. It's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, thank you. It's fun to do. Michael Spinks is a great guy. Hey, the other thing is this. We talked about an Irish heavyweight today in Jerry Cooney. You wrote an article a couple weeks ago that people could find on thegruelingtruth.com about another heavyweight, Peter Mayer. You want to talk a little bit about that article? Sure. I really wanted to sort of uh, research the Ireland's only gloved heavyweight champion, Peter Mayer. He followed uh, uh, John O'Sullivan and James Corbett and uh, uh, just wanted to sort of show the, the progression of uh, his, his reputation sort of takes a dive a little bit compared to them, but, uh, but he was heavyweight champion, 1895, 1896, uh, but defeated, great, defeated Joe Kowinski, uh, um, uh, he, He's a power puncher at a time where defense was really emphasized. And uh, it was a lot of fun uh, writing about Mayer and uh, just the, uh, the the grit it takes and the luck it takes to become heavyweight champion. That some of them, uh, it works out and it doesn't. And then uh, Mayer, had, there was a, uh, sort of a problem that the guy that defeated him for the heavyweight champion was Bob Simmons. And then Fitzsimmons and fought Tom Sharkey in a battle that was fraud was committed by Sharkey and his people. So there wasn't wasn't sure what to do, and so then James Corbett, who had retired, said, well, uh, you could just say, I'm still heavyweight champion, and then, so anyway, Peter Mears, some people don't think he was heavyweight champion, but, but, he, but he was. Corbett retired, he, he handed the mantle to Peter Mayer, and so Peter Mayer sort of slipped under the cracks of uh, Jeffries and Fitzsimmons and Johnson and the others, but uh, he's Ireland's only glove champion, and uh, my girlfriend's Irish, and I said, you know what, I'm going to write a hell of an Irish story, but not stupid Irish not like John Ford was, and I'm not thinking of John Ford's movie, but it's where America goes so Irish, it's cuckoo, cuckoo Irish. I want it to be uh, about Irish values, which is just hard work ethic. And, and the guy just came from Ireland, became heavyweight champion. Nobody else came from Ireland, became heavyweight champion. So I want to tell a story. All right. Very good. Remember, everybody, you can check that out on thegruelingtruth.com. All right, Chris, we're going to wrap it up. We will be back next Friday, same time, 2 o'clock Eastern on thegrillingtruth.com to talk a little Michael Spinks on our old-time boxing series. The really sad thing is, Chris, we're now doing old-time boxing shows about guys we grew up watching. Well, and, and as you said, sometimes we wonder what the heavyweight ranks if the old-time fighters even now could knock out the guys today. No, I'm just kidding around. Oh, Jerry Cooney I mean, would have like destroyed a... Deontay Wilder. He'd have hit him with one left hook to the body, and Deontay Wilder would have puked on himself. So it's uh, you know, it, it's fun to, to to talk about uh, some of these guys and try our best to be honest and tell the truth about them, and hope they deserve to be remembered. All right, very good. I want to remind everybody: you can hear all of our shows on iHeartRadio, iTunes, TuneIn, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, Deezer, Podcast Attic, over 300 different outlets. You can find the Grueling Truth. So make sure you check us out wherever your favorite podcasting platform is. So for Christopher Shelton, I'm Mike Goodpastor. You've been listening to the Grueling Truth, where the legends speak. This episode is sponsored by Schwann's.com. What are you having for dinner tonight? Hmm, good question. Schwann's Home Delivery has a solution for you. Stock up your freezer with high-quality frozen foods like premium meats and sides, delicious ready-made meals, ice cream, and more. No subscriptions, no memberships, just a friendly yellow truck that's been delivering food for almost 70 years. Listeners of this show get a special deal. Get 20% off your first order with code YUM20. Check out schwanns.com backslash yum for details.
You can't control what's outside your home, but you can control what comes in. Because Clorox disinfecting wipes kill 99.9% of viruses and bacteria, including COVID-19 virus, when used as directed on hard, non-porous surfaces. So whether it's from dirty doorknobs, dirty shoes, or something else, outside germs won't stand the chance. When it counts, trust Clorox. Kill Pseudomonas, Salmonella, and Influenza virus type A2. Kill SARS-CoV-2 on hard, non-porous surfaces. Use as directed.